right, good morning. It's a good day, isn't it? Yeah, it's, been, it's a great day. It's especially a good day for me because 40 years ago today, I stood at the front of a little church in the small town of Smithport, Pennsylvania, and watched my bride come down the aisle. <laughs> Thank you. Good day. God has been so good to us. He's blessed us in so many ways and thankful for all these years. And, uh, you know, I've told this story before. It's been a while, so I'm going to tell it again. About when, when I asked Becky out the first time, sort of an embarrassing story. I had, uh, I transferred in in the middle of the school year. She was at Grace College, and I transferred into Grace middle of school year. And uh, wasn't long before I had seen her and really thought, man, I'd like to get to know her. And so um, the problem was she was a nursing student. And all the nursing students, they had the same block of classes and same schedule, and they always were together everywhere they went. You know, so there's five or six of them everywhere. I would have risked going up and asking her out if she'd been alone. You know, but I, have not, I was not going to do that with five or six other girls standing there. So I was waiting for that moment where she, I'd see her by herself. It just didn't happen. And so uh, I, I started going to church. I went to church, the same church she went to. That was a spiritual decision on my part. Yeah. <laughs> but it still didn't happen. And I'm sitting there one Sunday night before the service started. I'm sitting there, and in walks a friend of mine. He sits down next to me. And then a couple minutes later, comes Becky with some other girls. And they come in, they sit down on the other side of this guy. And he starts talking to her. I think he's sort of interested in her. And, and then, but then he introduced me to her. And I was like, wow, that was great. You know, I, now I've crossed that hurdle. She knows who I am. This is good. I don't have to worry about that step. You know, so I'm good to go. And so I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm just, now, now it's just a matter of I can catch her alone. You know, and, and but today, the weeks went on. Final week of the semester, I walk out of a building and I look up and there's Becky walking out of the building, another building by herself and turning and walking up the sidewalk towards me. And I said, ah, this is, this is it. It's time to man up. It's, t- you know, take the risk. And so, so I did. She's, we start to walk past each other and she smiles and she keeps on walking. And I says, excuse me. Uh, just want to know, they had some activity on campus that week, and I think it was a movie or something, and wanted to know if you'd be interested in going to this movie Saturday night, and then maybe going out to eat. And she's like, okay. Not real excited, you know, so. <laughs> and, and, then, and, and then I'm like, and so I start going over the details. Well, I think it's supposed to start, start at like 6 o'clock, I'll be by at 5.45, I'll get you, you know, look forward to Saturday night, and all, all this stuff. I'm, I'm going through all the business part of it, you know, and then uh, she's like, okay, and then I, I say, so I'll see you Saturday, she said, okay, okay, she said, but by the way, who are you? <laughs> I'm like, wow, that big moment I had at church that night, I, I just realized was not a big moment for Becky, you know, <laughs> and uh, I realized through the years, too, because she still doesn't remember that night, <laughs> that 
our relationship would have gotten never started if I hadn't pursued her, if, there, if I hadn't initiated that pursuit. It's the whole story of the Bible, isn't it? God pursuing his people. From beginning to end, it's all about God pursuing us. And through the centuries, he's used every means possible to get people's attention. And he used creation. He used angels. He used prophets. He used miracles. He used the law. He used tragedies like famine and drought, disease, even death. He sent his own son who paid the ultimate sacrifice for us and resurrected from the dead, God pursuing us. He gave his written word. His kindness is intended to, as Paul put it, lead us to repentance, right? It's God pursuing his kindness to us. God pursuing us. His promises of blessing, his discipline, his guarantee of judgment. It's all about God pursuing us. See, the Bible is not just about God pursuing people back then. It's also the story of God working to bring us to himself one day. And the book of Ezekiel is another example of that. God in his desire to reach people however possible. And because he's trying to reach them however possible, he uses some strange methods that's our strange stories. He's trying to get the message across. You know, some people look at Ezekiel, they think he's sort of nuts. But I think Ezekiel was just a guy doing what God told him to do. I don't know what you know about the book of Ezekiel. For a lot of people, it's sort of like, uh, I think, you know how people talk about areas of our country as flyover areas? You know, they want to, they don't have any desire to stop there. They just want to fly over it to get to what they think are the more exciting places. I think sometimes people view the book of Ezekiel as like a flyover book. Because what's go, what happens is we like Genesis, we like Exodus, you know, those great stories. We like the historical books because they, these great stories in them we can relate to. We like Psalms and Proverbs for that quick bits of wisdom that we can get. But then we come to some more difficult, more challenging books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They're difficult, they're challenging, and they also don't seem to relate to our lives. And so they're just sort of flyover books so we can get into the New Testament. I think that's a mistake. I think there's some great stuff there for us to learn about. One scholar said the book of Ezekiel is full of majesty, obscurity, and difficulty. I, I have another word. I think it's full of the bizarre. The prophet Ezekiel had a bizarre experiences and he did bizarre things all because God told him to because God was, would do anything in pursuing his people. So we're going to look at some of those strange stories today and the next couple of weeks. But first, let's talk about the setting. You remember the nation of Israel has been divided. It was one time known as Israel, divided, and became known as the northern kingdom, Israel, southern kingdom, Judah. Sometimes Judah is called Israel. It gets a little confusing, but basically, that's the, that's the gist, okay? 
That northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 721 BC. Northern kingdom never had a good king, always rebelling against God, and so they fell pretty early. Southern kingdom lasted a little longer because they had some good kings. They had some good years. Off and on, they went back and forth. They fell to the Babylonians in 586 BC. So it lasted a little longer. The Babylonians, in fact, invaded Israel three times. They came in 605, and they took away some of the young nobles. That's where guys like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, his friends, got taken to Babylon. Then a few years later, 597, the nation of Judah had rebelled again against Babylon, and so Babylon comes in again, and this time they take away more. They take away 10,000 people. That included Ezekiel. Went on a couple more years. In 588, God had had enough of their rebellion, and so had the nation of Babylon, and so the the Babylonians come in a third time. They destroy the outposts around Jerusalem. They come to Jerusalem itself. They destroy it. They take a, they, a lot of people are killed. A, a, a lot of other people are taken away in exile. And in 586, Jerusalem falls. So Ezekiel is taken to Babylon before the fall of Jerusalem. We know he's married. He's got his wife who probably remembers meeting him the first time. <laughs> they lived in their own house in Babylon, so they had relative freedom. His early messages were sent back, pointed back to Jerusalem to warn them about coming judgment. After Jerusalem falls, his messages become more encouraging and providing hope for the future. So what happens here is with all the times that Ezekiel does something that God tells him to do, all these strange methods that he begins to use in his messages, it's like God saying, has told them over and over and over again what he expects, what they need to do, but now he's not just telling them, he's also showing them. So in chapter 3, God called Ezekiel to ministry, and right off, what, what, we're supposed to, surprised by what God does, because one of the first things he does with Ezekiel is to temporarily make him mute. Towards the end of the chapter, God takes this unusual step. He takes his prophet Ezekiel, and he makes him unable to talk. Verse 26 says, Moreover, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth, so that you will be mute and cannot be a man who rebukes them, for they are a rebellious people. It's unusual, right? Taking a prophet's mouth and shutting it. I mean, that's what they do. That's, what, that's how they get their message across. They talk. Now God's saying, not going to let you talk. And the purpose of that is given to us right there. It's so that Israel knows it's not a man who rebukes them, but God himself. So think about that. And think about if you came in this morning and, and I didn't say a word. Some of you would be like, wouldn't that be great? But think about next week, Pastor Kevin comes up, he stands up here, and then, and, and, and the week after that, and the week after that, he doesn't, he doesn't say a word, he just carries on this like big game of charades, you know? You know, and, and he goes on to demonstrate what, what the message is. 
That's what's going on with Ezekiel. He's given, in fact, four different examples that we're going to look at of what God's message to the people is. And, and, and he talks about the brick. He talks about the bed. He talks about the bread. And he talks about the barber. So hang with me through these, okay? First of all, there's the brick. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now you, son of man, get yourself a brick, place it before you, and inscribe a city on it, Jerusalem. Then lay siege against it. Build a siege wall, raise up a ramp, pant, pitch camps, and place battering rams against it all around. Then get yourself an iron plate and set it up as an iron wall between you and the city, and set your face toward it so that it is under siege, and besiege it. This is a sign to the house of Israel. So you say, okay, Israel, God's like Ezekiel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to show, because you're not, you can't talk. I want you to show what's going to happen to Jerusalem without saying a word. So, go where everybody can see you and get yourself a brick and inscribe like the skyline of Jerusalem on that brick. And then I want you to put it there where everybody can see and I want you to build siege walls around it. Siege walls were built so that invading armies could look into the city, the, wall, the walled cities. They had to see over them, see what's going on. So they built siege walls so they could see. And then lay siege to it. Siege warfare was when you cut off all supplies. They couldn't get in or out. And so, Ezekiel, I want you to attack this brick in front of everybody. Build your siege walls. Make sure that you've cut off all supply and build a ramp. They always built ramps when they came to these cities because they were built on hills. And so invading armies would build ramps to, get, to be able to get to the wall. Yeah, there are still ramps today. You go there, you see the ruins of like Lachish, an ancient city destroyed by the Assyrians. And you go there today, still the ramps there that they used, they built. In fact, scholars believe that that ramp took 25,000 tons of material, rock and, and dirt brought in to build this ramp. Or you go to Masada, the Romans, when they were laying siege to Masada, built a huge ramp up the side so that you can still today climb up to Masada on that ramp and back down. God says, I want you to build a ramp to your brick. <laughs> and then I want, you to, I, want you to lay, I want you to fight. And so Ezekiel's there, he's built his little model and he's probably running up to it. He's probably kicking the brick. He's throwing rocks at it. He's hitting it with sticks. And, and, and this is God's way of drawing attention to the people and saying, you may think Ezekiel's nuts, but this is actually God. God attacking his own city. And you notice he talks about this iron plate, probably like a griddle that he's supposed to put up. It's impenetrable representing the separation between the people and God because of their sin. Isaiah talked about that in Isaiah 59 too. He said, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's the real tragedy of living in rebellion against God. The, the separation that happens. And so you see this scene as Ezekiel acts it out. And God tells Ezekiel to besiege the city. And Ezekiel goes to war against it. 
what God wants the people to know is that the enemy that they're facing isn't really so much the Babylonians. It's God himself. He's laying siege to his own city, which would have blown their minds. I mean, it's almost inconceivable to them that God would, would go against Jerusalem. But God wants them to know that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because of their own sin. And if we went on to look at chapter 5, that's exactly what's going to happen to Jerusalem. It hasn't fallen yet, but it will. That's the example of the brick. It's, just, it's a general warning of the judgment that's going to come. Ezekiel's still not talking as God pursues his people. And he uses the second example of the bed, verse 4. As for you, lie down on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel on it. You shall bear their iniquity for the number of days that you lie on it. For I have assigned you a number of days corresponding to the years of their iniquity, 390 days. Thus you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. When you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. I have assigned it to you for 40 days, a day for each year. Then you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared and prophesy against it. Now behold, I will put ropes on you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have completed the days of your siege. What? God's like, hey, Ezekiel, the next thing I want you to do, okay, hold off on the brick for just a minute. Next thing I want you to do is lie down. Maybe not that unusual to start, but then he goes, I want you to lie on your left side, and I want you to lie there for 390 days. It's more than a year. 390 days. Now, that means he just, he just laid there 24 hours a day. I think what it means is his typical workday was to go lay down, which may not be too bad. But 390 days. And, and as you lay there, you're going to bear their iniquity. He's going to show the results of their sin. Can, can you imagine? And the people are probably going like, Ezekiel, what are you doing? Where everybody can see you're, every day you come out here and you lay down. 390 days. What we're told is that those 390 days represents the sin of the people of Israel. One day for each year. Pretty serious stuff. I and mean, that's a long time to have been in rebellion against God. A lot of times people ask, well, so that 390, does that go back to a particular event? And scholars really don't have a consensus on that. Almost everybody you read has a different take. Some go backwards in time. Actually, some go forward in time. It's not specified. What we are told is it represents their sin. And it's a long time. And then after 390 days, God tells Ezekiel, I want you to flip over. Lie on your right side for another 40 days, one day for each year of Judah's sin. Because despite having what they had, they had the, they had the temple, 
They had Jerusalem. Despite having all that, despite God working, the people of Judah had also continued to provoke God by worshiping other gods. And what this whole demonstration is about is the stubbornness of their sin and the patience of God. 430 total days, 430 years of rebellion. They were against God. And God patiently waited. The brick was about judgment coming. You want to know why the judgment is coming? Because of 430 years of rebellion against God. God's a, he's a patient God. But he's going to deal with sin eventually, Right? God tells him, set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared. Arm bared because you're prepared for battle. And, and while you're doing that, God says to Ezekiel, one more thing. I'm going to tie you up. <laughs> you're, you're laying there and I'm going to tie you up. Why? So that, so that Ezekiel, the, the message can't be altered. You can't alter it verbally because I'm not letting you talk. You can't alter it physically because I'm tying you down. God says, I'm in control. And he wants the people to know this isn't Ezekiel's message of judgment. It's his message of judgment. So now they've seen the brick and they've seen the bed, but God's not done demonstrating his discipline to the people. He wants it to be even clearer in their minds. And so he gives this third example, and that example is of bread. Verse 9 says, but as for you, take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt, and put them in one vessel and make them into bread for yourself. You shall eat it according to the number of the days that you lie on your side, 390 days. Your food which you eat shall be 20 shekels a day by weight. You shall eat it from time to time. The water you drink shall be the sixth part of a hen by measure. You shall drink it from time to time. So during this time, while Ezekiel's lying on his side, the 430 days, his diet is controlled by God. And for over a year, what do you have to eat? Every day is a half pound of bread and a quart of water. Half pound of bread, quart of water, not much. In fact, what Ezekiel's eating is so little that during those days, he probably wasted away to nothing. You talk about dramatic. Watching a guy starve himself to death. Be tough to watch. But that's not all. This wasn't a typical recipe for bread. It doesn't sound very good either. I mean, barley. Barley was considered a poor man's grain. You didn't eat barley unless you had to. Lentils was a member of the pea family. Bread made from peas. You know, doesn't sound good. I mean, this, is, this is not Texas Roadhouse Rolls. You know? Some have called it a polluted bread. And the fact that God tells him to use six different ingredients may be his way of telling the people of Jerusalem that when the siege happens, there won't be enough of any one ingredient to make bread. They'll have to use whatever they can find. So the bread's not good. 
There's not much of it, and it's not good, but that's not all. Verse 12 says, you shall eat it as a barley cake, having baked it in their sight over human dung. That's right. Human dung. Then the Lord said, there will, thus will the sons of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will banish them. Ezekiel's supposed to bake this bread over a human dung. Mmm, boy. You know, mama's cooking. Can you imagine? It's nasty, disgusting, repulsive, whatever you want to call it. And it's that way on purpose because that's how God viewed their sin. And Ezekiel's supposed to make sure to do this where everybody can see it so they know how it was done so that they're repulsed as well. Let them see how bad Israel's sin is because God finds it disgusting. The idea is so bothered Ezekiel, that he begged God, please, no. Verse 14 says, but I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I have never been defiled, for from my youth until now I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has any unclean meat ever entered my mouth. Then he said to me, see, I will give you cow's dung in place of human dung over which you will prepare your bread." Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I'm going to break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they will eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and drink water by measure and in horror, because bread and water will be scarce, and they will be appalled with one another and waste away in their iniquity. While they're watching Ezekiel waste away, it's a picture of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. So for the first time, Ezekiel begs off. And he's been asked to play with a brick in the middle of the road. He's been asked to lay down for a long period of time. He's been asked to bake bread out of this strange mixture so that everyone can see. And he did all of that without complaint. But now he objects. I probably would have too. Not just because of how disgusting it is, but in order to stay pure before God. And so Ezekiel pleads with God, please don't make, please don't make me do this. And God's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to compromise. You don't have to use human dung. You can use cow dung. Which, I don't know if Ezekiel found that a little bit more acceptable. It still was considered unclean according to the law. It has that contaminating element to it still. Some people have questioned that command. Why is God telling Ezekiel to do something that's contrary to the law? Well, it's pretty simple, actually, because the law is God's tool. He's in control of it. It's not in control of him. So he can temporarily cause Ezekiel to disregard the principle of eating unclean food to show in an extreme way how horrible their sin was and how terrible the captivity that, they're, that is coming to them will be. Things will be so bad that they will have to ration what they have to eat and drink. That's why he's talking about measuring because they're trying to make sure everybody has a little bit. 
And even the way it will be prepared will shock them. That's the point, to shock these people into realizing what's coming. That's why God uses the words like anxiety and horror in regarding what they'll be eating and drinking. And why is all this happening? Because God is still pursuing men. He's still pursuing us. And then there's another picture that he uses, another example. What may have been for Ezekiel the most humiliating sign of them all, and that's the barber. Chapter 5, verse 1, as for you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard. Then take scales for weighing and dividing the hair. One-third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city when the days of the siege are completed. Then you shall take one-third and strike it with a sword all around the city. And one-third you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath a sword behind them. Take also a few in number from them and bind them in the edges of your robes. Take again some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire. From it a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. So Ezekiel, God says, hey, Hey, Ezekiel, I want you to take a sharp sword to shave with. A sword, sounds like it's a little bit overkill, doesn't it? And, and it is. And the reason is because God is trying to get people's attention. So here's a guy shaving his head and his beard with a sword. He's got, everybody's watching. What's this going on for? You know, we hear shaving and we think not a big deal. I mean, guys shave their beard and their heads all the time now. But to Ezekiel, this would have been a huge deal. Back then, men didn't shave their heads. Men didn't shave their beards. Still today, sometimes you'll see Orthodox Jews and they've got the, you know, the curls coming down on the side. That's because of their interpretation of Leviticus 19.27 that says, you shall not round off the hairlines of your heads nor trim the edges of your beard. So some of them consider it a heathen practice to shave those side locks. Heathen. And as a priest, Ezekiel was probably even more disturbed by the command because if a priest shaved his head, he wasn't allowed to serve as a priest. He's done. Leviticus 21.5 says, they, talking about priests, shall not shave any area on their heads bald, nor shave off the edges of their heads, nor make any cuts in their flesh. And completely shaving the head and, and beard was known to be a pagan ritual for the dead, which was also condemned in the law. Deuteronomy 14.1 says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves, nor shave a bald spot above your forehead for the dead. So Ezekiel's probably thinking, God, I don't, I don't, man, God, I'll go back to using human dung if you want me to. Just don't make me do this. This was a statement on the defilement and the humiliation of the people of Judah. He's pointing out to them, hey, you're, you're spiritually dead. You're like, you're pagans. It's humiliating but we're not done. Once Ezekiel's cut it off, then he's supposed to take the hair and weigh it. 
probably not something anyone's seen done before. Yeah. Take your hair that you shave and weigh it and divide it into three parts. One-third will be burned in the fire in the center of the city. One-third was supposed to, he was supposed to take and strike it with a sword all around the city. And one-third, he's supposed to throw it up in the air and let it blow away. Why? Because this is what's going to happen when Jerusalem falls. A third of the people are going to die in the fire. A third of the people are going to die by violence. And a third of the people are going to scatter around the world. It's tragic. But catch this. Ezekiel is also told this, and this is key. This is, to me, the point of this whole long story. Verse 3 says, Take also a few in number from them and hide, bind them in the edges of your robes. Burn some, chop some up with your sword, throw some to the wind, but take a few and bind them in your clothes. Why is that? Here's representing the people, right? And God is pursuing his people. And so there's always going to be a remnant that God is keeping. For his. God was pursuing them. Not only was he pursuing them, and not only was that picture important for them, it's important for us. Because that remnant out of that remnant came his son. Out of that remnant came salvation for us. The whole thing is about God pursuing people. He's going to correct sin, but he's going to pursue his people. Those hairs, they're our spiritual heritage. Heritage. Think about it. There's always been and always will be God's people who are one and kept by God because he's always pursuing. So God has Ezekiel demonstrate what's going to happen in all these dramatic ways so the people know this is all from him. The brick, it's about judgment's coming. The bed, it's the judgment's coming because of this long history of sin and rebellion against God. The bread, the bread is the, the degree of the judgment that's coming. The barber's about the humiliation. Not only physically are you going to suffer, but spiritually you're going to suffer. But God patiently, graciously continues to pursue his people. It makes me wonder what would it look like if God acted out what, what we deserve? 
But God patiently, graciously has pursued us and paid the price for us. His son laid down his life, carried our sins, not just in a demonstration, in reality. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. He carried them for us. And I think about his correct punishment of their, their sin in, in Judah. And I'm thankful that my sin has been dealt with and done away with. And that God will love us enough to pursue us. And I think of two major reactions. When we think about God's pursuit of us, to me, two things hit me right off. First of all, rest. Rest. And I, when I say rest, I'm not talking about being complacent. But knowing that he's pursued us, there's, there's no rejection there, is there? There never has been. There never will be. And so because the God of heaven has pursued us, it lets you breathe. You feel secure. You know, this world can reject us. This world, people, whatever you put your trust in in this world, it can go bad. Whether it's people or things, whatever, it can go bad, but the God of heaven has pursued us, so it's secure. One thing that Becky should have gotten from my pursuit of her was that I was serious. And it should have, all these years, made her secure. That's why we're told as husbands, love our wife like Christ loved the church. Should make them feel secure. God pursued us, and it should give us rest. If he loves us that much. You know, we've just been talking about how things like anxiety and how we handle it and that, what we think. If we could face, we, we, and we can face all sorts of trials, if you can start to get your mind around the fact that you were pursued by God, that he wanted you and worked to have a relationship with you, there's not a whole lot that can shake you. You can rest. You're secure. We love because he first loved us, right? And then the second major option is to return. Rest and return. If you've been running from him, he wants you to come back. And it may be that you say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but you'd look at your life and go, you know there's some areas of your life where you're not following what God has told us you should do in life. You're sort of doing life your way in spite of the fact that you say you're a follower of Christ. And I want you to know the reason you're here today, the reason you're hearing this message is because the God of heaven is pursuing you. He loves you. He wants you to turn from that sin and come back to him.
don't put it off. Don't let time go on. Don't let there be that separation between you and God. Come back to him today. Deal, deal with whatever it is you're dealing with in life, whatever you're doing that you know, this isn't according to what the Bible says, but I'm doing it anyway. No, deal with that and get it taken care of. Return. And if you've never turned to Christ, I'd say to you as well, the reason you're here today and hearing this message, it's not just by chance. It's not because you just walk, happen to walk. It's not just because somebody may be inviting you. It's because the God of heaven is pursuing you. Do you know that? He's pursuing you. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And if you turn to him, by faith alone, asking for forgiveness, basing your trust and your hope in his son's sacrifice for you, that he will come into your life. He will forgive your sin. He will walk through every day of life with you. The God of heaven, who we're told, will provide everything we need for life and godliness. We'll walk through life with you. And then when this life ends and you stand before him one day, he will welcome you into his presence for all eternity. Return. Come to him. Believer, make sure your life's right. God's pursued you. He wants you. Take that step today. And if you're not that believer, come to him today for the first time. If you want God in your life, come to him today. He'll give you a new life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for loving us. We, we didn't deserve that love, but God, you gave it to us. How great you are. How forgiving, how loving you are how you poured out your grace on us. And we're so grateful for that. So thankful to know that you have loved us and pursued us and brought us to yourself. God, thank you. And I pray for that individual who may be here, hasn't taken that step yet. God, they would take that step today. Thank you, God, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.